Our passage this morning comes from the book of Mark once again. Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 12. The word of God says, On the following day, when they came to Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who, brought, who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables and the, of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, also who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your inspired and God-breathed word. We ask that you would shine your light, the light of your word brightly this morning. Help us to better understand what we are to believe concerning God and what duty you require of us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, there's no Steelers game today, so I can go as long as I want. So no one better be looking at their watches or anything. We're good to go. Jesus arrived in Jerusalem. We saw that last week. Chapter 11 comes to the final section. Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem. We saw that as he arrives and the manner in which he arrives, the manner in which he is received, the words that he says, that he is fulfilling all kinds of prophecy in his arrival. The prophetic words of Isaiah, of Ezekiel, of Daniel, of Zechariah, all of these being fulfilled as Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem. We hear the people crying out as the hope of the songs they have been singing and the hope of the prayers they have been praying from the, the book of Psalms are, are realized in Jesus. Hosanna, he who saves us. Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and they sing and they welcome him. And we even see the significance of Jesus as he stands in Bethany on the Mount of Olives, the place where the glory of God was taken, ascended out of Jerusalem, out of the temple, up to the Mount of Olives so many years before, and as Ezekiel prophesied, that from the Mount of Olives will descend again the glory of God into the temple. We saw last week Jesus descends the Mount of Olives through the east gate into Jerusalem, into the temple. 
He looks around. As he looks around, we remember it was Passover week. It's a busy time in Jerusalem. A bustling scene. In fact, we've seen it as Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. There's crowds on the roads with him, also making their way to Jerusalem for Passover. Many ran ahead of him to, to welcome him with the palm leaves. But at this moment, everyone seems to be dispersing. They're going their own way. Jesus stands in the temple. He looks around for a moment, kind of the calm before the storm. And he makes his way out with his disciples and heads back up to Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Seems that Jesus stayed in Bethany during that Passover week. He would go to Bethany and that is where he would stay. That's where Mary and Martha lived. It's likely that that's where Jesus was staying. It's about a mile and a half to two miles somewhere in that range. And that would be the walk that he made. If you know where I live, that's about what it is. Between a mile and a half, two miles to walk from here to my house. Jesus makes that trek in the morning. And so he wakes up in the morning, he gets his disciples together, and they head from Bethany back into Jerusalem. And we come to the fig tree. I, at first glance, it's a little bit puzzling, I'll admit, this fig tree. As, as Jesus makes his way with his disciples, really what's happening is Jesus has decided he's going to make an object lesson out of this fig tree and teach his disciples a few things. Mark does something here. We've seen it a few times now in Mark where he, he layers stories together to teach us something or sandwiches them together to teach us a certain point. So he starts a story or an event or a parable or something like that, moves over, tells us about another event or scene, and then comes back and finishes what he started. And we've seen with Mark that they serve, they work together to drive home a singular point. Either they build on each other or it's two opposite positions or one makes clarification of the other. And so that is what he is doing here. And so he comes to this fig tree. And the way it's told in this first part makes, at first blush, almost Jesus feel like he just reacted poorly, almost petulant. That he comes to a fig tree, he sees it, he's hungry, so he heads over to it. It's not the season for figs to be growing, but he still gets upset with the fig tree and curses it. In fact, as you read, there's some people who use this to kind of even question the sinlessness of Jesus. But you need to understand, the Lord is using this fig tree to teach us a lesson. There's a couple ways to make sense, maybe, of the, the fig tree and why he acts like he does. As you read, I don't... I don't know. This is one of the suggestions put forward. As you read, there's, there's two types of uh, blossoms that happen on a fig tree. There's its normal season where it brings forth figs. Then in the, another part of the season where it leaves, but the figs haven't come out yet, there's these little nubs that grow on it. And apparently they're tender and they're good to eat. And travelers passing by would pick off those nubs and eat them. Perhaps that is what he's referring to when he goes to the, the leaves but doesn't find any of that, any of that little fruit, the, the nubs there to eat. However, I'm fine just accepting that Jesus in his sovereignty has a higher purpose for this fig tree than just bearing figs. 
And that is to demonstrate and become a lesson to his disciples and to his church what faith and faithfulness, faith and fruit really looks like. And so Jesus comes to this tree and he curses it. There's not much said more about it at this point. We do know that a fig tree is often used as an image for Israel. If you look back at the prophets, uh, Jeremiah, Micah, different prophets speak of Israel and they'll talk about it as a barren fig tree or as a fruitless vine. And when it does, what we can see is taking place here is that Jesus is making the point that he sees this tree and it's adorned with leaves. It's got some appearance from afar that there is life there. But when he gets close, there's no fruit. That it's got its, it's, got its outward look to it, but in, inwardly, it's got no life. It's got no fruit. And the point that is made throughout the prophets when the fig tree is pointed out like this is just the barrenness of their religiosity. That they're adorned with all sorts of tradition and, and, and the, the tradition, those rules that they have added to the law. They're full of tradition. They're full of pointing out the error in one another. They, they walk through these rituals and they add rituals and they go through the routine. But when God sees the heart, their heart is far from him. They are hypocrites of the worst sort. I always want to be careful when I start calling people hypocrites because I, <clears throat> you, I know you've heard me say this before, but probably the number one accusation of the church is that it's full of hypocrites. And yes, there's hypocrites in the church, but really the church is full of sinners. As R.C. Sproul used to say, it's the one club that you have to be a sinner in order to join. <laughs> it's full of sinners. And every hypocrite is a sinner, but not every sinner is a hypocrite, if that makes sense. So a, a hypocrite isn't someone who knows what is right, strives to do it, but, but falls into temptation and fails. He's talking about someone who outwardly puts on one thing for appearance's sake, but inwardly he, his heart is far from God. He is a, a play actor and he knows it. She knows it. So he makes this point with the fig tree. And then he continues on his way. We'll come back to the fig tree. Then he comes to Jerusalem. Let me take just a minute and, and paint for you kind of the picture here that he would have seen as he comes into Jerusalem. He would have seen the spectacular glory of the temple. It's, you'll see it called Herod's Temple. It's the third iteration of the temple and it's massive and its adornments are amazing. And he, Jesus and his disciples entered. They entered through the east and come into the court of the Gentiles. As they enter, Exodus tells us that everyone who comes into the temple owes a half shekel. That's sort of the, the temple tax to get in there that helps <clears throat> the temple upkeep itself up. And so at the temple gates, with so many people traveling, there have been a money exchanger there since the temple won't accept any money that has a, a foreign image or a false deity on its, on its coinage. They would be money changers there or they could change the money to pay the half shekel to get into the temple. He comes into the court 
of the Gentiles or the court of the nations. And this is the one place where the Gentiles were allowed into the temple. They weren't allowed in any of the other three areas, but they're allowed in the court of the Gentiles that they could be included in some way in the worship of God. The court of the Gentiles is roughly 500 yards by 350 yards. Or 325 yards. 500 yards by 325 yards. 35 acres. It's a a massive church they got there. So we're talking a, a massive area. Be marble pavement, marble walls, columns all around it. So Jesus comes into the court of the Gentiles and he sees it's become nothing but just a a massive bazaar of money changers, of animal stalls, of, of people selling and buying. Josephus, who is a Jewish historian of old records the Passover feast of 66 AD, so a little after this. But he states there that on that Passover feast, there were 255,600 lambs sacrificed, along with numerous other pigeons, doves, and sacrifices. I mean, you're talking well over a million people, hundreds of thousands of animals that would have been sacrificed. So you understand that the people are traveling all around, some at great distance, to get to Jerusalem for this Passover. They need to have a lamb that is uh, without blemish, without spot. For those who are poor, they need the the right dove or pigeon or animal or whatever the sacrifice is going to be. And it's going to be a lot harder to take a lamb and make that trip, to care for it, to feed it, to make sure that it doesn't break a leg or slice its ear or something that will now won't be an acceptable sacrifice. So instead of bringing the sacrifice, what they do is they travel to the temple and just buy one there. The Sadducees, who are in charge of temple affairs, understand this. And so they have set up stalls everywhere with these lambs, with these doves, with these birds. And we see that they charge huge prices for people to buy these lambs. And again, they can't just buy them with the money they bring. They've got to go to the money changer first. And don't think of like an organized office they go into. Just tables set up everywhere where people are haggling and again, charging all kinds of fees in order to exchange the money. So we're talking about a huge, noisy, bustling, smelly scene taking place here. One historian says it this way, the huge quantity of animals, so great as to be almost unbelievable, day after day, masses of victims were slaughtered and burned. And in spite of the thousands of priests, when one of these great festivals came round, the multitude of sacrifices were so great that they could hardly cope with them. Sadducees oversee all these temple affairs. The Sanhedrin collects the money that comes in. And yes, some of the money is for upkeep of the temple, but a lot of it is just to enrich the religious leaders. And this is the scene, this huge area, this huge commotion and bustle in the middle of Passover, in the middle of the busiest week and these sacrifices are being offered. This is the moment that Jesus shows up and he acts and he speaks. 
He really declares his mission in that moment. That he will be the priest and he will be the sacrifice. And he really seals his destiny in that moment. I watched a documentary uh, a little little while back on George W. Bush throwing out the first pitch of a baseball game at the World Series right after, just a couple weeks after 9-11-2001, after the attack there. If you remember after 9-11 what took place, that everything was on high alert. Any big gatherings, there was just nerves and tension were up. And so it was a big deal when they resumed <clears throat> baseball games and everyone came back. Everything was happening that way. The New York Yankees happened to make the World Series that year. Third game of the World Series, George W. Bush shows up in New York to throw out the first pitch. And it's it's incredible amount of nervousness and intensity. The place is packed. There is security. There are armed guard. There's everywhere. And George W. Bush, they are interviewing him and just the emotion of everything plus everyone watching and the, the millions of viewers and the stadium packed. And, of course, everyone's got on their FDNY, the fire department hats and things. And he strides out. And they had put a mound, a little pitching rubber, about halfway between the mound and home plate for him to throw the ceremonial first pitch from. And he walked right past it all the way up to the main mound, stands there, and just drills a fastball, perfect pitch down the middle. The place is going crazy. People are chanting. The lights are flashing. It's just, it's a cold chills type of moment, probably the last bipartisan moment in American history. And it's just crazy. I was looking it up, and he actually, about 12 years later, threw out another first pitch at the Amarillo Sod Poodles game. You know them, right? The Amarillo Sod Poodles are a small minor league team in Amarillo, Texas. They play in front of about 200 people. He went and he threw out the first pitch in a day game in the middle of July. You see the difference between these two scenarios? <laughs> one, he, he goes somewhere, it's a low-key, low event, nothing big happening. The other one, he goes onto the biggest stage in the biggest moment, in the most intense moment possible, and performs with that pitch. I give that example to try to give you just some idea of Jesus walking into the temple and the climactic moment that that was. And he doesn't just quietly go about his business. He flips over a table. You ever flipped over a table? That's a big action and commotion. He starts driving people out. Now, the temple is big enough. I don't think he brought everything to a standstill. But he certainly got the attention and made the scene in the area that he was. And certainly word filtered out around that everyone was finding out what took place. Sadducees certainly knew. And in that moment, he, he, is, he is coming in <clears throat> and he is making a declaration about himself that we'll see in just a moment. A declaration about the temple, about worship. And he is sort of announcing, this is my mission. And in so doing, he is sealing his destiny as he takes on, in front of everybody, the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin. 
He flips the tables. He says in verse 17, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? You have made it a den of robbers. And we see the chief priests, the scribes, they're seeking a way to destroy him, literally to end him. Why? Because they felt bad that, no, they were fearful of him because other people were starting to listen to him. They were astonished at his teaching. There are really three things that the Sadducees, the religious leaders, are guilty of. We'll highlight them quickly, then return to the tree. They've lost sight of the Lord. They've lost sight of God and all the worship that they are doing. It's become about everything, about personal gain, about themselves. They've lost sight of the Lord in it. And so the three things they are guilty of, first, they're selling access to God. They are selling access to God. They are making access to him a commodity. You you see these people travel. They're coming for atonement, to offer this sacrifice, to come into the presence of God. They need this lamb. They need this lamb, and they're getting charged these huge prices for them. They're, They're making this decision. They're setting themselves up, literally, of selling access to God. And that's part of why when, when Jesus sees it, his, he's, his heart becomes inflamed. Why he flips over the temple. He knows in just a few short days from this moment, as he hangs on the cross, taking his final breath, that the curtain that hangs between the holy place and the holy of holies, is shielding the Shekinah glory of God at the mercy seat, a place that blocks people from the access of God. As Jesus hangs on the cross, that curtain's going to be torn in two from top to bottom, winning access to God for everyone who comes by faith. Jesus is going to win that for his people, and he sees the priests here selling it, making a commodity, getting rich off of it. It's a truth that is true for us right now. Access to God does not need to be purchased. When you come, I'm not your priest. You don't have to come to me, tell me all your sins, so then I can take them to the Lord to see if he will absolve you of them. No, you you are a priest. You, You come before the Lord. You confess your sins before him. You receive mercy and grace before him. They're selling access to God. Secondly, they're denying God's plan of the gospel going to the nations. You see, in the the court of Gentiles, it's the one place in the temple where the nations can gather, where the Gentiles can gather to worship. And the Sadducees, Sanhedrin, have decided, oh, it doesn't matter, we'll just use this and set up a huge market, a huge bazaar to sell our goods. The prophet Isaiah tells us, though, that there is a time when God's glory will go to the nations. It'll be in the midst of all the nations, and he will gather those people in from all nations for salvation. Jesus quotes it right here in verse 17. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. You've made it a den of thieves, of robbers, trying to enrich themselves. And trying to narrow who can get access to God by, by selling that access. 
They're wanting a Messiah who will come and fortify their position of and influence as these religious leaders and kind of build on their traditions. Jesus is coming, no, wiping it out. And so they're trying to thwart God's plan of the gospel going to the nations. And then thirdly, we see what they are guilty of, and we see it as we return to the fig tree. They possess activity, influence, busyness, religion, but they do not have faith and therefore have no real fruit. Jesus returns. As he's returning, they pass the fig tree as they head back to Bethany. You see it in verse 20. As they pass by, well, I guess the next day, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you have cursed has withered. You see, the, the fig tree is the temple. The fruitlessness is the fruitlessness of the Sadducees, of the religiosity, of the leaders in Israel, of Israel. This episode is probably in everyone's uh, Bible called the cleansing of the temple. Jesus cleanses the temple. You know, he doesn't really. (laughs) He's coming to dissolve the temple. He's coming to replace the temple. Just like this fig tree is is withered at its root, the the temple has seen its day. That's why he's going to say just shortly later that in three days this temple will be ripped down and destroyed. Stone by stone it will be pulled apart. He himself is replacing the temple. He himself is becoming that perfect high priest. He himself will be that sacrifice. He himself will win access to God. It will be a free gift to you. He himself will draw in and welcome the nations. He will be the glory of God among us. And so the temple, at least as a means of approach to God, the temple is fundamentally being replaced by Jesus. And so he comes to verse 22 and Jesus answered to them. It's interesting how he answers. He says, "Have faith in God." <clears throat> Have faith in God. The difference between the withered fig tree and its fruitlessness, its empty religiosity, the the, the difference between that temple and all the activity and everything going on, but it's complete emptiness and, and losing sight wholly of God. The difference between that and what he's telling the disciples is that they need to have faith in God. There is no faith in God over here. He can see it by its fruitlessness. That yes, it's got the adornment. It's got activity. But it is fruitless. The rest of the passage really goes on then to speak a little bit about faith and actions that consist with faith. We sang about it. We went over it by the way God providentially organizes things for us in our Heidelberg Catechism. The the fruit that must be present, it isn't the fruit that saves, obviously. It is the faith. But if there is no fruit, there is no faith. 
When he sees the fruitlessness of the tree, he sees the same thing happening at the temple. What he turns and he teaches them isn't, hey, bear fruit. No, he turns and he tells them, have faith. Have faith. It's the Lord who will bring about the fruit. And look what he says about that faith. Verse 23, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believe what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. He's picking here a kind of hyperbole or a, a illustration that transcends every category to tell us there is no limit in God's power. There is no limit to the grace that God will pour out on you. Look how he continues in verse 24. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Now that verse has been weaponized and misused a lot into kind of a, you know, name it and claim it idea. We don't take this verse and just forget everything that the Mark, the Lord has told us in the Gospel of Mark to this point about taking up our cross, about denying ourselves, about following him, about becoming a servant of all. Or places elsewhere that he teaches us how to pray. And we pray for daily bread, that which is needed for today. We pray according to God's will, not extravagant prayers, but according to his will for daily sustenance. And so those who would take this and say, okay, so he's telling us whatever material thing I want or physical healing I want, if I just believe it enough, it's mine. No, he's saying when we fall on our knees and cry out to God, when we bring him the concerns of our hearts, we can know for sure when we do that in faith, we can know without a doubt that God hears us and he answers our prayer. And he answers that prayer perfectly. And he answers that prayer according to his perfect timing. And often it is the desire of our hearts. Often it is what seems good to us. But sometimes it's not exactly what seems good to us. The song we sang, I asked the Lord that I might grow. It, it sings about those things. Sometimes it's not exactly what seems good to us, but we know... <laughs> In faith, we know it's exactly what we need for our salvation, for our endurance, for God's glory. So he says, have faith in God. How is that faith going to show itself? It's going to show itself in prayer, in prayer that believes that God has the power to answer and that God is pleased to shower us with grace and shower us with goodness. And he most certainly will answer. And then verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. What can hinder our prayers? Faithlessness and unforgiveness. Faithlessness and unforgiveness. When we come to pray, our prayer should be marked as being full of faith. And they should be marked by coming from a forgiving heart. We have seen that, that a forgiven person is a forgiving person. True faith will show forth in fruit. 
True faith will show forth in prayer. True faith will show forth in our forgiveness to others. He looks at the temple and none of that is happening. You know, as I go through, this is one of those texts that it is easy for me to apply to other churches and other people. I mean, you look at big churches. I don't have any, when you're a small church, you always bust on big churches. I guess that's just how it goes. But there's big churches that are good. But you also can see sometimes there, there is so much that goes into, you know, the professional videography and the Instagram and the look and, the, and they curate this look that was just perfect. And it's, it's all this sort of, but inside what they're doing, Christ is the center of their message. The gospel is the heart of what they're doing. It, none of that they take seriously at all. It's like that fig tree. It's got all kinds of busyness, all kinds of activity. This is leaves. I keep doing this if you're wondering what this is. <clears throat> I just realized I've been doing it the whole service. These are the fig tree leaves. It's all kinds of, of adornment. But there's no fruit there because there's no faith. What marks faith and faithfulness is not just the activity, is not just the outside adornment. Is not financial gain, but it's prayerfulness, it's fruit, and it's a forgiving spirit. So before we just apply it to everyone else, we can look at our own hearts and our own lives as a church. Are we keeping Christ central? Are we going hard after him? Is our faith producing fruit? Is God producing fruit? through our faith is it showing itself in prayer and forgiveness let's pray Lord we thank you for your word we thank you for its truth and its challenge to us Lord as you in that moment Lord would boldly enter the temple Lord declaring that your house is a place the gospel goes out to the nations. Lord, help us not to make it a, a den of thieves, to make it anything else besides what it is meant to be, Lord. A place where we come into your presence, where we worship you, where Christ is central to all that we do. Lord, where our hope is to see the gospel go forward, both in our congregation, to those outside. Lord, I pray that we would have faith in God. Lord, you'd produce that faith, and producing that faith, there would also be fruit. Lord, the fruit of prayer, fruit of forgiveness, Lord, that would be real in our lives. I'll give you just a moment, thoughtfulness on God's word, and then we'll respond together. <clears throat>